0: Hey there, listeners. Chris here, and on this week's episode of Totally Sort Of, we're going to grapple with HBO's new biopic about Andre the Giant. We're going to talk about a couple of brand new video games we've been playing, one of them light and fluffy, and one that's downright bleak. Darren finds another excuse to talk basketball in relation to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist Histories. And finally, the two of us are going to pump a few quarters into our favorite arcade machines and turn the take-home top three into a top six. Check it out.
1: Welcome to Totally Sort of, the podcast. It's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend. I'm Darren. And I'm Chris.
0: We're going to let you know what you totally need to check out and what is sort of worth skipping.
1: All right, let's talk about what we've been up to this week.
0: I just got back from New York City this weekend.
1: I know, you are quite the world traveler these days.
0: Yes, it was just kind of a crazy month of lots of little trips, Um Had a really cool experience at a very old-school Italian restaurant. Where in New York? This was kind of uh, midtown, somewhere around Central Park. A little place called Il Tonello that a friend of a friend wanted to take us to. And uh, it was like stepping into The Godfather. It was uh, totally old school, like 1970s vibe Italian restaurant. Everybody in there, I think, was at least 50 years old, if not older. And the ambiance and the service was uh, was just really, really very cool. The other thing that was awesome about this whole dining experience, the, the food was okay and we had fun, but uh, everybody on the service staff, and they were all men, uh, I don't think I saw a woman serving anywhere in the in the place. They were all dressed to the nines in, uh, you know, tuxedos and everything. And every single one of them looked like they could kick the shit out of you and throw you at the door in 30 seconds. <laughs> Even like the maitre d' who was probably, you know, 55, 60, just had that kind of like, don't fuck me, kid. Just, just that kind of look. And uh, our main waiter was just like, Built like uh, a bodybuilder with a white tuxedo jacket over this huge frame. It was just—it was hilarious. I just kept thinking, you know, like they were. The service was amazing. It was so friendly and and classy. But I just kept thinking, you know, at any moment we could see somebody get the bums for that shit. Was really pretty cool.
1: Or someone come out of the bathroom with a handgun and start shooting.
0: (laughs) That also seemed like a real possibility. So, anyways, that was my kind of New York highlight. How was your week? It was
1: good. I was going to talk about, well, I was going to talk about how the Raptors are breaking my heart, but uh, I would instead want to talk about something that actually lived up to my expectations. Okay. So this, I think, may tie into the episode we're going to post next week, because I'm away next week, and I think the plan was to post one of our older uh, pre-recorded episodes. And I think if, It's episode two that you're likely to post. That's the one where I talked about reading the graphic novel Fun Home. Okay, yeah. And this week I saw the musical based on the graphic novel Fun Home. Uh, The story is generally about this uh, woman, Alison Bechdel, and she wrote this graphic novel, wrote and drew a graphic novel that is about her growing up with her father, uh, eventually realizing that she's gay and then finding out that her dad had secretly been gay their entire life. He commits suicide and then she's sort of trying to put all the pieces together and the graphic novel tells the story in back and forth through time of her life growing up in the house and her subsequent life. So what I wanted to talk about was the way it worked as a musical because when I originally talked about the graphic novel, I was kind of curious as to how you turn this into a play, let alone a musical, because it is a artist and writer writing a story that spans all over time and jumps all over the place. So they did it really interestingly. So they had three people playing her, one playing her as a kid, one playing her as sort of in her 20s, where the story is that she's discovering herself and finds out about her father, and one playing her as the writer and artist of the graphic novel. And she basically worked as the narrator. And so she would say, you know, caption, my father's house was not always the happiest place. And then they would have a scene with either the, the kid or something. And it really worked really well. But one scene in particular was just fantastic in that, so for most part, as I said, the uh, the writer graphic novel, play person playing that person was the narrator, except in one scene where she stepped out of sequence and went into the scene that should have been played by her 20-year-old self. And it was a scene where she comes home from university And she's accepted and realized that she's gay and has found out about her father's secret life as uh, being gay and hiding it all these years. And she goes for a ride with him in the car. This was something they did as a kid. And he says, you know, let's go for a car ride. And she sings this song because it's a musical Mm -hmm. where she's basically yelling at her childhood self or her teen 20s self to talk to him, like discuss this with him, say something to him about what you're both going through. And she doesn't. And it's shortly after that that he commits suicide. And the scene is super powerful to have her go in as her adult self, basically singing this song to her 20s self about what she should have done. And now I'm going to go super geeky on why, although I'm not a huge fan of musicals, sometimes it works. And there's this quote that says, like, if you can't say it, sing it. And the idea being that there are things that you can't talk about, but that singing is like a direct connection to emotions and that kind of thing. And if you can't just get it out, you can sing about it. And this is where it gets super geeky. (laughs) Because (laughs) in the <laughs> So, in the fifth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> okay. in the season finale, Buffy dies. And at the start of the sixth season, the like crew of other people cast this spell that brings her back from the dead. And for the first bunch of episodes of the season, she's like a complete bitch to all of her friends. And there's kind of this, like, what is her problem? They brought her back from the dead. So somewhere six, seven episodes in, there's an episode called uh, Once More with Feeling. And it's a musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's the only one they ever did. And the, the linchpin to it is that there's this demon that is forcing them all to tell their deepest, darkest secrets and to tell the truth, but through song. And Buffy sings this song, which is basically, I was happy. I had reached my reward, I was at peace, and you brought me back. And that was like the, and it it was a musical, and it was kind of ridiculous, but Buffy had that back and forth between serious and comedy, and the musical aspect of it was ridiculous, but they tell this deep truth through song, because she could never tell her friends that she was resentful of them for bringing her back to life. But if you can't, Say it, then sing it, and that was I don't know why I thought of that when I saw this this point, but it was kind nerd. of in my yeah, but it was kind of in my head about why i although I don't really really love musicals, sometimes it works, and in that scene where Alison is almost angrily singing and yelling at her twenty year old self to just talk to him, there was all of that aspect of the guilt that she felt because in her mind, had she said something, had she had that conversation with him, had she connected with him in the way that they were both experiencing the same thing, maybe he wouldn't have killed himself. Generally, it was all very good, but that scene, shifting the narrator out of time into that scene and doing that song in that moment was just, it was just really powerful and it really, really worked and it exceeded my expectations.
0: All right, shall we get into the weekend in geek?
1: Is there a new movie on Netflix
0: that you watched this week? Actually, not Netflix, but uh, HBO. I checked out their documentary Andre the Giant.
1: Oh, is that where it's airing? For some reason, in my head, it was on Netflix.
0: Yeah, it's an HBO slash WWE co-production, which is very important to my thoughts about it because it is very much. Uh, it was pretty good. It was enjoyable. But it is totally a WWE product, uh, if not outright propaganda.
1: (laughs) So here's Andre the Giant, but you should use that as a reason to come back, watch our wrestling.
0: Something like that. Uh, So basically it's a a biography of the wrestler Andre the Giant, who, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, was, was a hugely famous and successful wrestler through the 70s, 80s, 90s and really helped the WWF or WWE, as they're known now, get some, some real popularity. And this, this biopic was really kind of fails as any kind of interesting biography of Andre, but it's a pretty good documentary about the WWE's rise to power and what wrestling was like in those days. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool as a cultural context piece but it was really disappointing as a biography of Andre.
1: This doesn't have any connection to the Andre the Giant graphic novel biography, does it?
0: No, no connection. Um, but it's... Have you read that? Yeah, I have. So um, the, the graphic novel is by Box Brown. Uh, it was published in 2014. And he really covers all the same territory that this biopic does, but much better. And even so, I found the graphic novel it was interesting, it was enjoyable, I, I learned something about Andre, but it was kind of shallow, it didn't really have a lot going on, it was just more or less told you the facts and some anecdotes and some interesting little little tidbits. But this movie is even shallower in that it really, really focuses on particularly the the WrestleMania confrontation between Hulk Hogan and uh, Andre and really just sort of that used that match and that moment as uh like the central point of the movie and they try and build it up to be you know a defining moment in in wrestling and in pop culture it really you know it if you know anything about wrestling at the time it it feels a little bit Kind of just forced, uh, especially when they talk to Vince McMahon, who is the president and promoter of the the wrestling Federation and really just has always come across whether in character or out of character as a total sleaze bag to me. Um, and this this movie doesn't change that one bit, so anyways, that's my kind of diatribe about what I didn't like about it uh but it was still pretty interesting um you get you know some good early footage get to know, put andre in the context of the time uh in the 70s when he was really kind of schlepping around place to place and uh there's what's what's great about the movie is just the all the people they talk to and especially all the imitations that these other wrestlers and promoters do of andre and of other characters it's really pretty funny to hear Uh, you know, Hulk Hogan imitate Randy Savage or Ric Flair imitate, uh, Andre farting, those (laughs) kinds of things. Uh, it's so, you know, it's a fun watch and it's fun to kind of learn how, uh, the WWE kind of took all these little regional wrestling outfits and basically one by one bought them out and forged this national thing basically because it coincided with the rise of cable television. So uh, wrestling went from being this hyper-local regional thing with all these little territories to a big national juggernaut under the WWE. So it was interesting to learn that story, but it was disappointing to not learn anything more about Andre than I had from the Box Brown graphic novel.
1: Do you think you need to be either a fan, former fan, or one-time fan of wrestling to enjoy it, or does it have a broader appeal?
0: Uh, I think it would definitely have... It's it's definitely meant for a non-wrestling audience, although I think you probably would enjoy it more as a wrestling fan. They don't sort of pander and over-explain everything, but uh, it's it's definitely kind of, there's a little more to it for wrestling fans. All right. Also, uh, last uh, warning or comment about it is if you're not a Hulk Hogan fan, you may be kind of pained by how Hulk Hogan-centric this Andre movie actually is. But he's a good storyteller, so I didn't have a huge problem with that.
1: All right, and before we move on, uh, Andre Giant was also in one of the greatest movies of all time?
0: Yes, and uh, they do talk about The Princess Bride, and Andre's role as Fezzik in that. And it was interesting to learn that he was actually in really, really bad health when they did that movie. They really had to work around a lot of physical limitations that he had when he was doing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do recall him being not exactly spry in that film.
0: No, no. And uh, and traditionally, or, or, you know, typically, um, really just, he really had a hard time enunciating. I don't know if it was just his French accent, whether he had a speech impediment due to, the, you know, his physical size, but he was hard to understand. There's no two ways about it. Some of those should-be iconic lines are André Singh, <laughs> and everyone reacts and shakes their head and goes yeah right
1: eh, you wanted a lumbering giant you got a lumbering giant
0: exactly so yeah so i i'd recommend it but with uh with a lot of caveats
1: all right it looks to me like this week we both played video games
0: yeah what have you been playing this week
1: i downloaded and got into a game i've been kind of watching uh in development for a while called Frostpunk.
0: You must have, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show before, but you've definitely given me the heads up about this one, because it sounded familiar and it looks fantastic, so I'm i am anxious to hear what you think of it.
1: Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, so Frostpunk is a city-building survival game. It's published by 11-Bit Studios, and my... How I even got into this was uh, one time when I was at your place, I played the uh, the board game for This War of Mine, mm-hmm. which is by the same people. Okay. Uh, well, it's based on the video game, This War of Mine, which is made by the same people who made Frostpunk. Oh, now I'm even more interested. And so it's, it's like a city building sim, except you're in this, uh, well, it's our world, but... The world has been overtaken by eternal winter. And to ensure the survival of mankind when the world was collapsing, the governments got together and built these generators super far in the north um, because the whole world was turning into one big winter wonderland anyways. It didn't really matter where they were, but they... Things were in such a state of collapse that they needed to be built far away from people to avoid their destruction and the collapse of civilization.
0: Can I I just pause your review for for a a brief sidebar? (laughs) Do you you have any faith that were the world to be, you know, Mm -hmm. undergoing some sort of imminent collapse, do you have any faith that the governments of the world could come together to do anything like that?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure the, the idea is actually the governments of okay. the world. I think the idea is that the British government did it, and it doesn't look like they built enough of them to save a whole lot of people because I think the idea is that you are the last city on Earth. Okay. All right. Sorry, so just, you, just to you start you start with a massive coal-fired generator that is the center of your city, and you build the city out in sort of concentric rings around it. And so, in addition to the typical city building thing of having to manage workers and resources and things of that nature, you also have to constantly battle cold. Um, And also, the weather changes. So it gets colder, it gets warmer, and you have to keep expanding. I guess warmth works like influence in other games. So you have to keep expanding your ring of warmth to encompass your growing city if people live or work in locations that are excessively cold, they'll get sick and possibly die. So you're managing all the resources, you're managing workers and what your technology is going to be, but you're also fighting constantly against cold and a changing weather of cold, which would be your typical sim game, except this game adds an additional layer onto it in that you constantly have to make decisions about uh the laws of this new civilization. So for and they're always serious choices and they're never black and white. So for example, uh in the early part of the game, you can build rudimentary first aid huts. And when you look at the tech tree, like to get down to serious medical interventions, you're a long way off. And also you're fighting the cold at the beginning, so people are getting sick. And you don't have sufficient medical uh, technology to save them. So you one of the first decisions you have to make, and I've played it a couple times, it always seems to come up is, look, people are getting sick, some of them critically ill. You need to make a choice. You can either begin to do radical treatment on them or let them die. If you choose radical treatments, inevitably you're talking about amputations of people with frostbite and gangrene, which leaves them incapable of work, leaving you with people who consume resources and housing. But don't help it. But don't work. If you let them die, your uh, additional thing that you have to manage are, not resources, but is hope and discontent. And if you simply let people die, people become discontent and they lose hope. At any point in the game, if your hope gets too low, people will abandon your city and decide, we're going back to London. This doesn't work. You're, it, it, there's no hope of us surviving here. If your discontent gets too high, they overthrow you and you get turfed out to die in the cold. So every decision you make will have impact on the hope level and the discontent level in your city, and you're constantly called upon to make these decisions. So it's not about Sort of min maxing your efficiency as a city, you have to make these almost moral choices which will have all these impacts and it's it feels like a lot like this war of mine in that it's uh it's hard the the decisions you make are tough sometimes there is no good decision, yeah and you have to pick the the best of bad options and yeah, so uh, it
0: sounds like a nice evolution of of the systems and the concepts that they did in this war of mine, uh, I think that'll be really interesting to apply it to a group rather than just like a few individuals. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's a really good game. I'm enjoying it.
0: Um, So just a, a couple of plays in so far?
1: Yeah, I think I've... Well, I've been deposed as leader <laughs> of the city twice so far, yes. <laughs> nice. As one criticism, it does feel like uh, because... I don't know, maybe I've gotten more forgetful as I get older, but I keep forgetting to save regularly, and I keep getting to these points where it feels like I've made a decision, like, ah, I'm doomed, going to have to start over again, or go back to, like, when I saved six hours (laughs) (laughs) ago or last night. And so I I need to put a big sticky note on the top of my computer that says, like, auto-save, 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 and do it often.
0: Well, that's interesting because uh, the game that I was going to tell you about is also kind of a roguelike. There is no saving. Um, and it's a little uh, mobile game called Meteor Fall. Do you know anything about Meteor Fall?
1: I know nothing about Meteor Fall.
0: Okay. So um, it's produced by uh, a little, tiny little indie studio called Slothworks. And uh, just came out in January. I've had it for a while, and I it really sort of I really sort of got into it. All the traveling I've been doing, it has been a really good time filler on like planes and, and waiting rooms and stuff. So Meteorfall is basically it's plays like a deck builder, um, so it's kind of card based, but it also uses the super simple kind of Tinder concept of swipe left, swipe right to make decisions. And the game itself is sort of fantasy-themed, but it has a great art style that's kind of uh, evocative of Adventure Time. So it's kind of vaguely fantasy, but with weird contemporary elements and awesome, awesome characters in art. Basically, you've got, uh, when you start the game, you choose whether you want to be a fighter, a wizard, thief, or a priest. And you get a basic deck of 10 cards, and you go out and you start fighting monsters. And as you fight a monster, basically your choice with every card that you draw is play it or skip it. And it's super basic gameplay, but there's actually a lot of strategy baked into this really simple, simple little deck builder. You've got like two or three resources, you've got like stamina and energy... And it's basically just, you know, one-on-one combats, but they get a lot of variety into this very, very basic interface.
1: We talked a while ago about a uh, kingdom management game that you were playing where you played the the king or the queen, and it used that same swipe left, swipe yeah. right tinder mechanism. Is it by the same people, or is there any connection?
0: No connection there other than the, the central mechanic. That was Reigns. I'm yes. still playing that one, too. Reigns Her Majesty, actually. It's the the sequel to the first one. That one is a little bit more kind of RPG or choose-your-own-adventure style, where you're making decisions about yes or no to different requests and things like that. It plays more like a a magic or a deck-building game of combat. It's just that your choice, the way that the gameplay works, is you draw a card and you can either play it or you can skip it for resources and if you skip it for resources, you know, you're just trying to time things out. Basically, you play until you die, and it's uh, it's roguelike in that sense, and that you always start at level one with almost nothing, and you just see how far you can go. <laughs> it was a little slow to get started, but uh, the more I play it, the more impressed I am with how much strategy there is, and, you know, you start to really rip through the early levels every time you die, because it gets, once you know what you're doing, it's pretty simple. But uh, it's still a lot of fun. And the, the characters, like there's, the creatures are like, there's a snot wolf. Uh, there's a nuke, nuclear viking. Um, there's just like really, really fun, goofy looking characters. And yeah, so I, I totally recommend it. And there's no in-app purchases or anything. It's like three or four bucks to, to get it and you're good to go.
1: All right, I do have some travel coming up. Does it require a constant network connection, or is it separate? i um, and...
0: pretty sure you can play offline. Like 90, right. 90% sure. Yeah, check it out. Maybe I will. Okay, so uh, what have you been listening to? Uh,
1: I've been back on the podcast uh, listening. I was looking for something new to listen to, and uh, I found Revisionist History. Have you listened to this podcast? That's uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think. It is, yeah.
0: I think I've listened to a couple of episodes, but it didn't. It was okay, but it didn't uh, sort of grab me to keep going. But uh, I'm interested to hear what you think.
1: Yeah, I've been really enjoying it. I I've had times had issues with Malcolm Gladwell. I kind of find him to be a little pretentious, but I wonder if that's actually just my jealousy at the amount of time he seems to have as a result of his successes to read and spend times doing things I wish <laughs> that I could do because I'm quite enjoying him uh, in this podcast. So the idea to revisionist history is that he's looking at overlooked and misunderstood aspects of history and kind of providing some uh, detail or context to things that may have been overlooked or uh, misunderstood about the way history worked. And a lot of them use that hook of this was the historic thing, and this is how it has some reflection on our world today or on thinking today. Mm -hmm. So I listened to two episodes. I listened to a couple episodes, but two of them particularly stood out for me that I quite enjoyed. So one of them is called The Big Man Can't Shoot. And uh, for me, being a basketball fan, it was about Wilt Chamberlain. And uh, I talked about him... It was weird because I came across this shortly after we talked about him when we were talking about the Harlem Globetrotters a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Wilt Chamberlain was one of the most dominating centers in NBA history. He has the only—he's uh, the only NBA player ever to score a hundred points in a single game. And uh, I mean, his scores were c- consistently in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. But in any game that was remotely close. They could never play him at the end of the game because he was a horrible, horrible free throw shooter, like in the 30 and 40 percentage marks and a a reasonable, uh, like you can stay on the floor and not be an embarrassment free throw shooter shoots at about 75% and good three sh- free throw shooters shoot in the 80s and 90s. So, at 30 to 40, it meant that all they did was foul him at the end of games and he would consistently just miss shots. So, he could never play. And so, scoring 60, 70, 80 points a game, if he had been able to shoot free throws at any moderate level, like he could have been close to 100 every game, kind of thing. And at one point, he was taught the mechanic of shooting underhand, like what they call the granny shot, which is from, and it's discussed in the podcast, from a like biometrics kind of body and uh, physics thing, is a much more natural way to shoot a free throw because it's easily reproducible as opposed to trying to put the ball on one hand and direct it towards the basket from above your head. And he could, he actually got up to close to 70% shooting that way and then just refused to do it anymore because he felt silly doing
0: it. Wow. and
1: so they and so the so
0: <laughs> sports is just so randomly arbitrary that's that's really fascinating
1: and so then the episode of the podcast uses this as a as a springboard to get into why people do dumb things in the absence of all reasonable thought education scientific evidence that you should be doing it, and people refuse to do it. So I quite like the intro into it with the Will Chamberlain story, and then the way they sort of rode that into, or Malcolm sort of rides that into a broader discussion of why people do dumb things. Sorry, there are two seasons of it now, and the third season's just about to start, so you may find that there's more of interest to you at this point. I don't know what we want to call this, but it's somewhat news or
0: catch-up. Okay, Uh, yeah, I think you wanted to do a little follow-up on our uh, Infinity War extravaganza from last week.
1: Yeah, so I had two parts to this that I wanted to talk about. One came out of uh, having edited and posted um, our episode one, previously unreleased episode, last week. Okay, We talked at one point about... Disney acquiring Fox and how they now have all of these properties, uh, you made the comment which I heard when I listened to the episode that uh Disney was making okay movies but not great movies from the Marvel properties and i when i when I listened to that, I realized that that was before you'd seen Thor Black Panther, <laughs> or Infinity, so my question to you was, do you still want to stand by that that they're making okay movies but not great movies
0: um I will stand by that because I think, you know, I think we've got a nice little run of of three really cool movies there. Although I'm not sure I would put Black Panther up on the same level with those other two. Uh, I think Thor Ragnarok was an awesome fluke uh, where they really let the creator shine. And Infinity War was a, an awesome payoff of all of this world building they've been doing. But I think by and large, I expect the next two or three movies to be, you know, unremarkably good, but consistently consistent and good, but not spectacularly so. So I don't know. I'd like to be wrong.
1: All right. So that was number one. Number two was something that we didn't really get into when we talked about the movie, and that was sort of uh, the idea of predictions along the who's dead, who isn't, because what I've heard... And seen written over the last two weeks is, is everybody pre-snap, dead-dead, and everybody post-snap coming back? Or how you think it's going to shake out? So the pre-snap deaths in the movies would be Heimdall, yeah. Loki, Gamora, and Vision. Do you think all of those people are dead-dead?
0: I... That sounds plausible. That sounds like a plausible theory. I'm surprised about Gamora, but I guess they've introduced, you know, uh, Mantis as another female lead, and they might want to bring maybe maybe someone else from the main Marvel universe into Guardians. So, yeah, I could see that being the case.
1: All right. So then I wanted to use that to, to float my theory on what happens. Hit me. All right. I think uh, of those four, Gamora is coming back.
0: That seems very plausible because I think the emotional connection with Thanos was fantastic. And I think they have to build on that.
1: And that's my prediction is that Thanos in the next movie, either at the point of defeat or near defeat, decides that it was not worth it. He can't uh, accept what he did and he sacrifices himself to bring Gamora back.
0: Hmm. That's a cool, cool theory. One interesting concept that I'd uh, read about in some sort of clickbait spiral of Avengers stuff that I was looking at (laughs) um, was the comment that uh, all the original movie Avengers, as far as we know, are alive, and that that might be setting up some sort of flashback to the original cast in the next movie as kind of a core team again. And I would add to that the idea that they're probably going to have sort of original cast as Mm -hmm. uh, like an OG kind of Avengers and passing it off to a new team of Avengers that would maybe be headed up by uh, Captain Marvel and people we haven't really seen focused on so far.
1: Yeah. So that's the second part of the question. Do all of the people who remained alive after the snap stay alive in Avengers 4?
0: I don't know. I think there's a really good chance that either Cap or Iron Man are going to go down just because the actors are probably on their way out. I don't think it's a, a done deal, but I I'd be, wouldn't be would be surprised to see either of them buy it.
1: So this, again, is a springboard for me to float my opinion, uh, my prediction on. Okay. You. The conversation with Tony Stark and Pepper about the dream about them having a baby. Yeah. Can't be for nothing. Hmm. That's got to pay off at some point. So my prediction, Captain America dies. Tony and Pepper have a baby and name it. Steve. And Tony steps away at the end of that. So you get rid of the two actors who are sort of aging out and contracting out. And you get that payoff to that moment. And then you got Falcon or... Bucky stepping in as Cap in the future.
0: I buy it. I'm there with you. I think that seems a uh, pretty pretty plausible. Nice work, my friend. So we'll see how
1: well that pays off yeah. uh, or else people will just be mocking me next year. Oh yeah, well. Now it is time for the take home top 3.
0: So this week you asked me to dig back into the gray matter and retrieve my favorite 3 arcade games. That I did. Okay, so this was a, this was kind of a tough one. Again, because I have so many favorites, it was a matter of how am I going to focus my list a little bit. So two out of the three, I focused on like what do I just have the best memories of playing. Uh, and one of them is just a game that I kept going back to over and over and over again. The first one I'm going to talk about is from 1982. Uh, I don't know when I started playing it. Uh, And I probably started playing it at our local convenience store, Jug City, before we kind of got to go to the bigger arcades in the big city nearby. Um, And that is Moon Patrol.
1: Mm, Nice. Yeah. So Uh, The way that little buggy bounced was awesome.
0: And it was so satisfying. And I I really, uh, you know, I hear that music, and I'm going to plug a little bit of the music in here now. That it's it was a very simple, basic game with really blocky, chunky graphics, but it held up, and it's one of those games that um, over the years, whenever I've had access to an arcade or to an emulator, uh, I'll always pull up that game and go back to it and keep trying to see how far I can get.
1: Awesome. Yeah.
0: So uh, Moon Patrol uh, was my kind of early video game pick, but almost everything else that I would have put on my list would be a multiplayer, big, stand-up console game. Uh, that's That, to me, was like the ultimate in arcade gaming, was when you get three or four buddies crammed around a machine, either beating each other up or racing. Um, so almost everything else I would have picked was either going to be a racing game or uh, a fighting game of some sort. Uh, my second pick is kind of a sequel to a game called Sprint and it is uh, Super Mm Off-Road. That's one of the big stand-ups where everybody has their own steering wheel, gas and brake and uh, tiny little cars wheeling around a dirt track and going over impossible jumps. That was just so much fun, that one. Um, I especially love the physics or unreality of you know, launching your tiny little pickup truck off a ramp uh, or a jump and hitting the invisible wall at the outside of the track and then bouncing down. (laughs) Like, the physics were so limited, but they were so, you know, you could totally work it. And uh, that was just, that game was a ton of fun to play with friends. Yes, it was. Sprint was really good too, but I think Off-Road was just that little bit crazier. Yeah, absolutely. So... The third category actually ties back to uh, Andre the Giant. And, you know, I think all my... Probably five of my top ten all-time arcade games would be wrestling games. I just... I like fighting games, but I like really dumb, brainless fighting games. And the wrestling games tended to be a little bit more like button mashers than complicated combos. I could never... Get anywhere with Mortal Kombat. I could never get anywhere a Street Fighter. But the wrestling games where you just had to, you know, smack the button as fast as you could, um, that was more my speed.
1: Punch, 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 punch. Oh, he's dazed. Grab him. Yeah.
0: So uh, the one that I picked as my all time favorite was uh, 1989 WWF Superstars. So that's the version. Uh, there was a sequel a couple years later. That was very similar, but just had better graphics. But this was the first one where you had all the big WWF characters, Big Boss Man, Hulk Hogan, Ted DiBiase, um, all of them. And you could do like tag team, battle royale, Royal Rumble. Um, It was just mayhem. And you had two buttons, you had punch and kick, and that was it. You know, playing up to four players on that one, it was just a really well-balanced game. Like, it wasn't complicated, but it was really well-balanced, and you never really knew what was going to happen. Right on. Yeah. So, some some notable um, near-misses on that, or uh, almost made the list, uh, Golden Axe, Gauntlet, yep. uh, Smash TV... Lots and lots of fun there. How about you? What were you thinking of uh, as you were waiting for this list to come through?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was uh, think thinking about my own. My immediate jump to was Space Invaders because it was like my first love. Yeah. But I, I don't think it is Space Invaders because I think, yes, Space Invaders was my first love. But Asteroids was more like my first actual girlfriend <laughs> because, uh, I mean... I, I loved Asteroids, and uh, I remember playing it, and then I remember seeing other people playing it and being horrified by the... If you remember, the what people did to get points on that game was destroy the asteroid field, leave one tiny rock on it, and then just fly around the screen waiting for the aliens to come in and shoot them. Yeah, And I was outraged by that <laughs> because it was just like, that is not the way the game was meant to be played. This is Asteroids, not fly-around-shoot Space Invaders. This is Asteroids. Wow. So I remember that sense of outrage, so I went with Asteroids over Space Invaders because it was, like, the first girlfriend. <laughs> um, I went with uh, Vanguard.
0: I, I, I almost put Vanguard like, on my list. Absolutely.
1: That was another one that was in Jug City where uh, we played Moon Patrol, <laughs> But that's the one where you had four buttons, so your ship could fire in all four directions. And your ship basically stayed in the center of the screen, and the background moved and shifted, and you had to move around it. So it wasn't always constantly moving in one direction linearly. And so sometimes you were going up, sometimes down on diagonals, and you had those four buttons so you could fire in all four directions. I think that was the first game with which I was truly obsessed because I think while it was in Jug City, every quarter I could get my hands on went into that machine.
0: Yeah, and I, the, the real um, sort of payoff with that game was you built to a power-up and it was sort of like Mario's like uh, Invincible mode. Basically, you would power up to invincibility, but this awesome theme song would, would come in. Based on how bad video game music was at the time, this was like a full orchestra of like eight-bit yeah. glory coming in to uh, to you know sweep you off your off your feet on this uh, you know spaceship. It was awesome,
1: and it also made your ship a powerhouse of destruction because while you had that you no longer had to shoot things. You just ram your ship through yeah. things. It was just like roaming around the screen, just smashing into all this stuff that you could never touch. And you had to sort of delicately shoot at from different directions. All of a sudden you just, you are just a <laughs> demolishing rhinoceros, just <laughs> charging through everything.
0: I love that you picked that one. Cause I almost put that one on my list, but I, I'm glad we got to talk about it anyways. Cause yeah, that was, that was so much fun. And uh, I've, I've played a lot of emulators and uh modern like machines that are trying to play these old arcade games, and Vanguard is one that without the joystick and four button combo, it just doesn't work i've I've no. never found anything else like you can't do it on a keyboard, you can't do it on a controller. It's just not the same.
1: nope, I agree
0: yeah, good call buddy
1: So the third one is uh karate champ. <laughs> Which was the one where you have two two joysticks, one that basically moves you back and forth and then you use the other one to punch, kick, and and aim in the directions. So this one I picked because it was the first game I was really, really good at. Yeah. So at lunchtime in high school I could go down to the arcade and people would wait to play because you could keep going, but people could put a quarter in to jump in and fight you. And like I was untouchable at one point. I could put a quarter in and as long as people kept trying to challenge me I could play like the whole lunch hour just crushing people at that you know
0: I was always going to come up and foot sweep you though (laughs) (laughs) that was like the one move I could do in that game was the foot sweep but I worked it
1: yeah so I went with my uh, first real relationship in (laughs) asteroids my first obsession with Vanguard and the first one I was really really good at with Karate Champ nice
0: good stuff Okay, well, I guess I need to give you a bit of an assignment for next week. That you do. Um, We're probably going to have, as you mentioned, a little bit of downtime. So you're going to have some time to think about this. And I'm actually going to get you to talk about musicals. Okay. So I want you to tell me three musicals that you either sort of uh, were surprised to enjoy or that you just sort of, that your love for them has grown over the years.
1: That'll be interesting, because there aren't really that many that I enjoy.
0: I know. Well, I don't think either of us are really into musicals, but, you know, you seem to have been seeing a lot lately, and I know your kids are into different kinds of entertainment, so I thought to challenge you to to pick some musicals that you were surprised to enjoy.
1: All right. That's a good one. I can definitely do that.
0: Okay, so I think that's about us done for this week. You can catch us every Wednesday at totallysortof.com or in the Podbean app. You can also find us on iTunes or in the Google Play Store.
1: We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at totallysortof, or email us at hello at totallysortof.com. Even better, leave a rating, a review, or a comment in the iTunes Store, the Google Store, or right on our website.
0: Our intro song is Punk and is used with kind permission from the artist K-Bonna Black. You can find links to his music and all the stuff we talked about in the show notes. Until then. Okay, until next time, I'm Chris McKinnis. And I'm Darren Hogan. And you've been listening to the Totally Sort Of Podcast. Talk to you later, buddy. You bet, pal.